so I just want to encourage you guys, grab your Bibles with me and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll be in verses 22 all the way to chapter 2, verse 10. And we're looking at a message entitled, The New Life. The New Life. Uh, a handful of weeks ago, we started this series called Strangers in 1 Peter. And uh, we saw that Peter opened up with the body of the letter uh, regarding all about salvation. And we studied about uh, the living hope that we have in Jesus. And then uh, last week, we had a slight pause when uh, Joe came and shared with us the word of God regarding the mind. Uh, but we're going to now be back in our series together. Uh, if you can remember, and if you were here two weeks prior to that, I was not here, uh, but Tate was teaching uh, through a kind of that second portion of 1 Peter chapter 1, talking about how to live a holy life that fears God. And so we're kind of picking it up where we've left off there in verse 22. And the reason that the title of the message is The New Life is because that's what we're talking about today, the new life in Jesus. You see, true conversion is always showed in the life of the one who truly commits their life in Jesus. Have you ever thought about how you know if someone's confession of Jesus was genuine? Sure, they raised their hand or they prayed a prayer or they went up front. Maybe they were even given a Bible. But we know that salvation doesn't have anything to do with the externals, but it's all about the internal position of the humble heart. And so it's not just like a contract to sign, right? You can't see anyone's salvation, let alone even your own. And so what about you? How do you know that your confession and commitment was legitimate? Well, there will be a new life. This is what the Bible promises, that those who are in Christ are born again. Birth, it speaks of life and new life, and they will be new creations in Christ. And so that is going to eventually show its way out in your daily life. Now, we must understand that those works, that new life, is not the means of salvation. That's not how you get saved, but it's the evidence that someone really was made a new creation. Listen, you can't hide when someone's having a baby. It shows, and then when you have a baby, they cry. It, it, is, it is clear that there is new life there. It's not, you can't hide it. And in a similar way, I believe that when you are touched from heaven and God has created in you what was dead and he's made alive, you won't be able to hide it. And so Peter started sharing kind of on some of the details of what this new life looked like last time when we were in chapter one, talking about holiness and fear. And he's going to continue on with this very important concept as we pick it up in verse 22. Now today we have a lot of real estate to cover, meaning we got a lot of ground to cover. If you look in your Bibles, look at verse 22 and then look all the way to chapter two, verse 10, we got a lot of verses. And so because of that, we don't want to get confused or mixed up. And so rather than reading the whole text up front, what we're going to do is pray, and then we'll read them individually as we work our way through the text today, okay? So let's pray, and we'll get into it. Father God, we do thank you that you have given us new life. Lord, that once we were in darkness, once we were lost, once we walked in the ways of the world, and without you, we would be nobody. But God, we thank you that you found us. You grabbed us. You got a hold of our life. It was you who drew us to yourself. And Lord, we simply responded to your initiation into our lives. God, we love you because you first loved us. And God, we thank you that you've given us this new life. Would we have an understanding today of what the new life in Jesus really looks like? God, we pray for clarity we pray for conviction, and we pray that for change. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. All God's people said, amen. amen. So first, we know that this new life is fueled by the word, by the word. And this is kind of the first section we're going to look at. This new life is fueled by the word of God. And we'll read this 
starting in verse 22, and we'll work down to verse 3 of chapter 2, okay? You're going to notice that we're going to cross into chapter 2, and I want to tell you that's okay, because when Peter wrote this letter, he did not write it with verses and chapter breaks. That came much later uh, as a way of reference, and so when he wrote this letter, it's one continual thought. And so there's going to be times when we're studying God's word, and uh, the same thought is going to simply transfer over to chapter 2. And so we're going to see that today. Look in your Bibles, verse 22. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the, uh, of the grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word by which the gospel was preached to you. Verse 1 of chapter 2. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Well, Peter teaches here two crucial concepts. I want you to note them down. The first one is the fact that it is the word that changes lives. Number one, it is the word that changes lives. The other concept he teaches in this portion is that it is the word that will last forever. So it's the word that changes life, and that very word is the word that lasts forever, which means when the word of God changes someone's life, it's going to be a lasting change. Peter states in verse 23, look in your Bibles, that it is through the word of God that we were born again or born from above. That's the idea of new life. And this new life didn't come from below, it came from above, born again. And this is a reference to what he has already spoken about back in verse 3. We already went over this. Chapter 1, look at verse 3. He says, has begotten us again to a living hope. That's the same word. You could interchange born again and begotten uh, together. And how did God do this in our life? Through what vehicle did this change come, this new life? Well, it is through the word of God. And that is why every Sunday and every Wednesday, when you come to this church, it'll be this word that is preached. It'll be this word that is talked about because it is only by the word of God that our life can change. Romans 10, 14, note it down. It says, how then shall they call on him and whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Listen, today, if you are born again, you've experienced the new life in Jesus. It's only because someone told you the word of God. It was whether it was mom or dad or relative or neighbor or crazy man walking on the street or, or pastor or leader or whatever it might have been. Someone brought you in some way, in some form, the word of God. The only reason that you know about Jesus is because of the word and because someone took the word and brought it to you in whatever form that might have been. And you see, it is that word that endures forever. Everything else in life will wither and fade away, but the word of God endures forever. Matthew 24, 35, Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Did you know that the Bible is not just something for us now? It is this word that will endure into eternity. Bible study doesn't stop in heaven. It just looks different. We'll have a fuller knowledge, but we won't have a complete knowledge I still think though we're in the presence of God, we will both take his word and continue to know it because it's the word of God that endures forever. Now that Bible on your lap, 
this leather-bound Bible that I have in front of me, this book itself will not last. The Bible says that everything we see will one day burn up in the judgment of God, and then he will create new. But you see, the Bible is not just what you hold in your hands. It is a copy of the Bible. It's not the pages in which there is power. It's the words. It's the spoken words. And so this lasting word brings a lasting change in the life of one who obeys it. But what is this change? If someone really has been made a new creation in Christ, born again, and given this new life, what should be one of the initial results? Well, look there in verse 22 and 23. It's love. It's a real love. Peter says in verse 22, essentially, that because you have now have a pure soul, because of the word of God, you can now have a pure love. What's on the inside has been purified, and so now you are able to love one another like never before because of him. You see, this is one of the evidences that you and I have been born again or born of God. If someone does not love other people, they do not know God. 1 John 4, 7 and 8 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born, notice the word, born of God and knows God. He who does not love God or he who does not love does not know God for why God is love. It's pretty straightforward. Basically, one of the results in a believer's life is a supernatural love for other people that was not there beforehand. It is the Holy Spirit who takes the word of God and breathes new life into you. And one of the results will then be a love that overflows out of you. The Bible describes that the Holy Spirit pours into us the love of God. And Jesus talked about the fact that it is the Holy Spirit who's poured into your life then to become flowing waters out of your life. Rivers of living water, he called it, to those that believe in him. And so we should be able to look back on the past week of our life and we should see evidences of the love of God living through us. It's not our love, it's his. The only reason that we are able to love is because we know the one who is love itself, the very source. But think about your life for a moment. Don't say anything out loud, but think about the last week. Were there acts of unselfish benevolence and kindness towards someone? Was God using you in any capacity in any one of anyone in your life? Could be a sibling, could be a parent, could be a friend, could be a rando, could be whoever. Are you a vessel for the love of God? It is one of the sure signs that you know him. That's why Jesus said that the world will know you by your love for one another is the Holy Spirit who does this through the word of God. And notice here, he uses the word sincere. Look in verse 22. See, what's awesome about this, it doesn't mean that you need to go out there and just be more loving. You won't be able to do it. You'll fail. But what happens is that as you consume the word of God, as God initially works in your life, love will begin to overflow out of you it'll be naturally supernatural. You don't have a focus on being more loving. You just connect with God. And as a result of knowing him, God will use your life. You see, it's not only the word of God that will endure forever. It is the love of God that will endure forever. That's why 1 Corinthians 13, 13, you guys know the chapter of love, 1 Corinthians 13? The very last verse talks about three qualities. He says, there are faith, hope, and love. But the greatest is love. Why? Because hope and faith will have an end. Love is the only thing that will transfer into eternity. We won't have to hope in heaven because we'll see him. We won't have to have faith because we'll see him. But the love that God pours into our life and we pour out to others, that will transfer to eternity. And so because of this, the love that's been poured into us through this new life, 
we will have the ability to lay aside certain things. Certain things that were in our hearts at one point, God says you will have the power to lay them aside. Look there in verse 1 of chapter 2. And he mentions these different characteristics, malice and deceit, hypocrisy and evil speaking, and all kinds of, uh, of things that has to do with our attitude and, and uh, relationship with other people. But listen, we don't lay aside these things by our strength. Christianity is not a religion where you just try hard. No, it's where you come to God and follow after him hard, and he will then produce in you the ability not only to love, but lay certain things aside. Psalm 119 verse 9 says, How can a young man or young person cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. In your heart right now, is there hypocrisy? Are you living one way with some people and living another with others? Are you someone at home with mom and dad, but someone else at school? Hypocrisy. Do you have evil speaking in your life? Do you slander other people? Abusive lies it it describes? Is there envy internally? No one knows about it, but you look at someone else and you resent what they have. And there's bitterness that's created. God says that if you come to his word, that it will be his word that will cleanse you. No other way can you have a cleansed heart than by taking heed according to his word. But what I love about this is that it's not about you trying. It's not about you being more loving. No, it's about letting him do it in you. And so what's our job? Well, look at verse two. We are to desire. We are to desire. Verse two says, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. This word desire, it means to have a deep longing for with consistency and persistency, meaning you are going after it. The idea of a desire is a very strong Greek word that describes a man's most inner longing for God. Psalm 42 verse 1, David puts it this way, as the deer pants for the water brook, so pants my soul for you, O God. You guys know what panting is? Maybe you have dogs, right? They don't sweat, they pant. So if you ever take your dog on a run or, or a, a walk and it's hot, then they come back and what do they do, right? They just like lay on the floor and they're just like, they're just panting. And they try to drink, but they're panting at the same time. And, and there's, this, there's this desire for rest and water. In a similar way, David would say, my soul, my, the very inner part of who I am wants more of you, God. And of course, we know that we know God through his word. And Peter uses an interesting illustration here. Notice verse two as newborn babes. He's talking about newborns. Anyone have a younger brother or sister in the house right now that's a newborn baby? Okay, anyone have younger brothers or sisters that you remember when they were newborn babies? Okay, listen. If you know anything about a newborn, you know that they drink a whole lot of milk. And they really don't do a whole lot more than just milk and looking cute. And that, that's pretty much it. Everything revolves around that. They typically drink up to eight to times, feed up to eight to 12 times a day. It's their only source of nutrition and sustenance. It's not something that they only want, but it's something that they need, and God designed them like this. Really, all a newborn does is drink milk. And then they sleep, and in their sleep, the nutrition from the milk is, is getting into every part of their body. And then, of course, it comes the time when they process out the milk. But their life, is surrounded and sustained by milk. Now you might say, Joel, what are you talking about? It's an illustration. Because this is how you and I are to desire and go after the word of God. Listen, this is your life source. With you remove the word of God from your life, you will be powerless, malnutritioned, and sickly. 
This is what we're to desire. And notice it says the pure milk of the word. This means that there's nothing else mixed with it. In a sense, it's regarding coming straight from the source that we want the word. This is, listen, the natural, supernatural response of a believer. Give me the word. Matthew Henry says it like this. Strong desires and affections to the word of God are a sure evidence of a person's being born again. If they be such desires as the babe has for the milk, they prove that the person is newborn. You see, we talked about love being one of the evidences for being born again. One of the other evidences is the fact that you will want the word, which means, I want you to get this today. If in your life, there is a lackluster desire for the word of God, you could care less. That when the Bible study starts, you can't wait till it's over. That the Bible at home is getting more dust on your shelf than anything else in your room. And you don't have a desire for the word. I'm going to tell you right now, there is something wrong in your relationship with God. If there even is a real one. You see, God designed newborn babies to desire milk. Do you have to teach a newborn? I mean, to some extent, do you have to teach them to want milk? You might have to teach them how to, how to feed, but that's what they desire. That's what they want. And in a similar way, God has designed, listen, the born again Christian, the one who has experienced new life to want the word. So don't say anything, but is there a desire for the word of God? Now we're instructed to desire. So it doesn't mean we, we don't have a part to play, but is there something? Is there something there? Why? Well, it's that we might grow. Look at verse two, that we might grow, not physically, but grow spiritually. Without the word, your growth will be stunted. It starts with the pure milk of the word of God. You gotta start somewhere, which is just a intake of what God's word says. And then over time, you'll move on to the meat of the word. Uh, this is the, the deeper things of God, which is always exciting, but it starts with the milk. And then he says this in verse three, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. You see, once you begin to taste or experience this for yourself, that desire will only increase. You guys ever tried something that you were apprehensive to at first? You were against trying, and then you tried it and you couldn't get enough of it? You see, I believe some of you might be resistant to the word of God. You have a, you come to it with a preconceived notion, the idea that you have already a conclusion before you ever come. You say, I don't like reading, so I'm not going to like reading God's word. I can't understand God's word. I'm not smart, so I can't do that. And you have already come to a conclusion before you even taste it. But listen, if you've really tasted of the grace of God, it'll be something that you can't get enough of. And so my challenge should do to you, if you would say, I don't really desire it at all. Start tasting the goodness of God and the grace of God through his word. And I'm telling you what it will produce in you through the Holy Spirit. You will not be able to get enough of it. It's awesome. And then notice the bridge here. It is the milk of the word that we desire, but we taste the graciousness of the Lord. You see, the word of God that endures forever is not an end in and of itself. It is the means to an end. What do I mean? We do not worship the Bible. None of us bow down to the Bible. We don't, we don't set them. We have respect and reverence, but this is not a, a who. This points us to the who. And who is the who? It's Jesus. See, the Bible says that it is in the volume of the book that it speaks of me. And not only does it point to him, but he takes on the title as the word of God. When John gives us a description of Jesus in his second coming, he says this, he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is speaking of Jesus is called the word of God. Now this Jesus that we're talking about today is not only known as the word of God, 
But Peter goes on to talk about how he is known as the chief cornerstone, which brings us to point number two, the rock, in verses four through eight. The rock. We looked at the word. Now let's look at the rock. Verse four. You guys still have your Bibles open? Yes? Look with me. Verse four of chapter two. Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Look at verse 6. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. Paul here instructs us not only to come to the word, but the Lord of the word. To him who is described in a few ways here, and I want you to note them down. In the passage we just read, Jesus is referred to as the living stone. The living stone. He's referred to as the chief cornerstone. The stone of stumbling. And you can look in verses four through eight for all of this. The stone of stumbling and fourthly, the rock of offense. There are three different Old Testament scriptures that Peter quotes here that all points to Jesus being what we call the cornerstone, which some have rejected and others have received. So what even is a cornerstone? And we sang that song in the beginning. I'm not sure if you caught that. It's a great song. But we're, we're, we're singing about a stone, a rock. What's going on here? Well, cornerstone... In, in ancient buildings was known as the keystone. This was the stone that wasn't just on the corner, but it was a stone that was the most important part of the whole building. That without the cornerstone for any structure, it would not last. Whatever is built would simply crumble. Now, I don't know how many of you guys might play the game Jenga, but I'd like to illustrate this with you guys. Tate, if you want to bring on up the table. Raise your hand if you've ever played Jenga before. Yeah, who thinks you, who thinks you could beat me at Jenga? Oh, I don't know. No, we're not going to take any volunteers. But I want to show you guys something, okay? Thank you. Thank you, Tate. Thank you, Daniel. Jenga. Let's see. Oh, that didn't work. Hold on. This works first service. We're going to get it. There's one more. There we go. Very good. All right, Jenga. Okay? A structure. Now, there are many blocks, but there's, there's one particular block that I'm going to point you to that we're going to call the cornerstone, okay? Now, if I take off this one, does that do anything? No, structure's still there, right? I could even try to go for this middle one. Would you say this is a cornerstone? No, why? Yeah, it's still, it's still one, and, it's, and the structure's still up, right? If you remove the cornerstone, everything crumbles. So if you remove Jesus from the church, you remove Jesus from any equation regarding salvation, you got nothing, what about these side ones? Is this the, is that the cornerstone? No? All right. What about this one? The other side one? No? So which one is the cornerstone? This is the cornerstone. And this is what it's describing for us when it's talking about the fact that Jesus is the peace. Now look in your Bibles. It says, coming to him who is the chief cornerstone. To him who believes that he is the foundation and everything, he's precious. But notice, for some, that cornerstone becomes the rock 
of offense, the stone of stumbling. Why? Because if you reject him who holds it all together, it'll be him who is that very stone that for some we stand on and receive eternal life. But for others, that stone will be what they stumble over. They will have to, listen, anyone that goes to hell first has to step over and really what they'll do is trip over the body of Jesus who died for them. That's the only way that you go. You have to step over Jesus and it will become a stone of stumbling. So every time you play Jenga, I want you to remember that Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the one that keeps it all together. He is the foundation. And so when you reject him, everything else crumbles. And this is something that Jesus brought to the attention of the Pharisees. In Matthew 21, he refers to this very passage of Psalm 118 that Peter also quotes. Notice, look on the screen. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected, Israel, has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Verse 43, he comments about it. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it, and whoever falls on this stone will be broken. That's a good thing. But whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. And so for the one who comes to Jesus by faith, this, the, the chief cornerstone is precious. But for the one who rejects him, it'll be that which they stumble upon. And so what Peter is saying here, as he describes him in these different ways, the living stone, it's as we come to him, look at verse four in your Bibles, coming to him, being Jesus, the living stone, the cornerstone is awesome because notice what he says there in verse five. He is the living stone, but you and I are the living stones, plural. He's the foundation, but we are what is built upon the foundation. We are, the, in a sense, the pieces to the church that God is building. So listen, when someone gives their life, life to Jesus, boom, another one is placed on top. Another one is then placed on top, building up the church, the kingdom of God. Now, what's so awesome about this is that this is talked about in other locations in the Bible. Ephesians 2, verse 20 says, Having been built on the foundation, this is our faith, of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the, what does it say? The chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. This is all a, the spiritual building of the church in whom you also are being built together. You're part of it. If you've experienced a new life in Jesus, you're part of it for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. You guys remember what Jesus said to Peter? Matthew 16, 8, when he says, and also I say to you that you are Peter and on this rock, not him, but the claim that he made that Jesus is the savior, I will build my church, Jesus is the rock, and the gates of Hades or hell shall not prevail against it. Okay, so check this out. Jesus says on this rock, which is really, he's the rock, he is the rock of salvation, the chief cornerstone. So on this rock is what I'm going to build my church. But you and I are the church. And so we are the part of the building. What's interesting about this is that you know how Jesus changed Peter's name to Peter, right? He, he's known, his name was Simon. Jesus meets him and says, your name is now Peter or Cephas. What does it mean? Any, do we have any Peters in here? No, none last service either. Anyway, so Peter means small stone or pebble. The idea of what Jesus was doing is he's saying, hey, I'm going to be the rock, but you are going to be the small stone that is then beginning to be built upon the rock of Christ. And you and I are those living stones. But what's cool about this is that it's not only about the, 
this building, but also we are the holy priesthood working there. And as priests, we are not offering up physical sacrifices like in the Old Testament, but spiritual ones. I wonder if it would surprise you today that I were to tell you, if you're a believer, that you are part of a holy priesthood. I want you to go home and tell your parents, if you're you're a born-again believer, hey, did you know I'm a priest? You are. According to this verse, look at verse 5. You, as living stones, you are not only part of the building, but you are those working in the building, which is the church. You are not only a priest, but we're going to find out in here, Revelation 1, that you are also royalty. Check this out. This is the words of Jesus. He is talking about believers to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests. Did you read that? Kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion. This is not spiritual talk. You are, this is not like, uh, I don't mean spiritual. It's not metaphorical. It's not just a nice thing. According to God, if you have been redeemed and washed by his blood, you are now looked at as royalty and as a priest. And you're like, priest? I don't know what comes to your mind about when you think of priest. I think of a white collar and one of those like wood structures that you go in and then like you can't really see them, but you can kind of see the face and you like tell them all your sins. And that's what I think of when I think of a priest. That's not what it's talking about. It's not that you have to start wearing like a, a collar and people have to start calling you father, Okay. What does a priest do? What's the purpose of it? To bring people to God. And now while we don't need to go get a collar or go be or go wear something that is other than the clothes that you're wearing, Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. You and I, in a sense, have now been a part of, now are a part of a priesthood. Our sole purpose on earth is that we might bring people to Jesus. And that is the the purest sense of what a priest is to do. Now, a lot of people have messed it up and made it weirder than it needs to be. But you see, as priests, look at verse five. As this holy priesthood, we are to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Spiritual sacrifices. What are those? Well, number one, there it is you. Romans 12, 1 says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. As priests within the kingdom of God, which is not just for a select few, it's for everyone to be a part of, our number one sacrifice should be us. Every day, we, in a sense, climb up on the altar and we say, God, my life is yours. And we are then offering ourselves as a spiritual sacrifice. But also included under that umbrella is things like Hebrews thirteen fifteen says, It says, therefore, by him, let us continually offer this sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips in giving thanks to his name. You see, what we did earlier, in a way, when we sang songs of thanksgiving and gratefulness and worship, what we were doing was we were offering as the priesthood of God, we were offering the rightful spiritual sacrifices of praise to his name. And what's so great about this is that for the believer, there's nothing separating us from sacred and secular. Sacred is what is holy. Secular, we think of that's just in the world. But you see, for the the believer, we're part of this priesthood wherever we go, whether we're in this building, whether we're at school, whatever it might be, that we are to do the works of our high priest in heaven. Okay? Does it make sense? All right, so for those who have been forever changed by the forever word and those who have come to receive the chief cornerstone and are now the priests of God offering spiritual sacrifices, we are not only the priests, but, but much more broad, we are the people, which includes the priesthood, but expands much more. 
We are the people of God. Whatever status that we had before, it is all lost in Jesus. The Bible says that he makes all things new. Look at verse 9 and 10, our last two verses for the day. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Peter kind of brings it to a conclusion here regarding this thought of the word of God and of course the rock of our salvation being Jesus. And he kind of gives the outcome here, the results. Listen, because of the word and because of the rock, there are four titles that now apply to all believers who are truly born again. At one time though, that these titles, I want you to look at verse nine. Four titles are given. Four uh, things that describe us as believers. They were once only attributed to Israel. So you read the Old Testament, you're going to read verses like these. And I know it's small print, but Exodus 19 and Deuteronomy 7. You're going to find all these scriptures about how Israel is the people of God. The nation of Israel is God's special treasure above all other people how he has made them a kingdom of priests. But listen, the great thing about coming to Jesus is that all those promises towards Israel in this way of who they were are now given to us. Israel still exists, the nation, and God's not done with them. But you see, we are not on the outside anymore. We have come on the inside because Jesus made a way. Remember when Jesus died on the cross and the book of Matthew says that the veil of the temple was torn in two? That was a big deal. See, the veil in the temple was that which separated men from God. They had to come with bloody sacrifices for their sin. But when Jesus died in his blood on the cross, the Bible says that God tore the veil in two. The idea was access. We have access. Now we are the chosen generation. Four titles given, chosen generation. This is the idea that we've been selected. It's not random. God has thought through redemption and he's had a plan since before the foundation of the world. And listen, if you have experienced the new life, this is your new status. You're a chosen generation. John 15, 16, Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. You see, God wants us to live fruitful lives, but it's only as we understand, listen, everyone look at me. The only reason that you chose to receive Jesus is because he first chose you from eternity's past. He's the one that came after you. He's the one that initiated relationship. All we are are responders. We just respond and say, yeah, I'm, I'm in for that. Forgiveness of sins, eternal life, new life. You, you're going to come and clean up this filthy life and, and I'm going to be used by you. We said yes to Jesus, but only because he chose us. So we're a chosen generation. Secondly, a royal priesthood. Now we talked about this a little bit earlier. He alluded to it. He said that we're a holy priesthood, but now here he describes a royal priesthood. And what's the difference? Remember, you and I, according to Jesus in Revelation 1, are kings and priests, meaning that we, are, we have a royal heritage and an inheritance, but we also have a job to do, and it's a divine job given by God. And these two things are now mixed. In the Old Testament, the kings and the priests, according to the law of God, were strictly prohibited from intermixing meaning no king was allowed to also be the priest. No priest was also allowed to be the king. Does anyone know why God did that? Yeah, more than likely it was a checks and balances kinds of things. If you read, I mean, just go read the book of First and Second Kings. 
it, it's a good thing that a lot of those kings were not priests as well. Some of them did, and they got in big trouble for it. But listen, now Jesus comes, and he breaks the mold. He is now high priest, and he is now high king. And you and I under him are now able to perform his duty as his line of, of royalty. We represent him and his duty as priests. You see, God's desire all along was to use Israel. That's why when we read those verses or looked at them in Exodus and Deuteronomy, he wanted them to be the kingdom of priests that would bring light to the world. But what did they do? They fumbled the ball. Rather than influencing the dark and lost world, they wanted to be like the lost and dark world and, and walked away from their calling. But now you and I, listen, we are those kingdom, that kingdom of priests. Thirdly, a holy nation. This is kind of what we've been talking about, a dedicated group of people for the Lord, a holy nation. And the fourth and finally here in verse nine, his own special people. And this is, to me, my favorite one. There's such a personal aspect to this. God doesn't just say, you're going to work for me. You're my servant. But he calls us his own. Communicates God's possession and ownership over our lives. Titus 2.14 says, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Why are you still here on this planet? Why has God not taken you home? Because listen, he has good works for you to walk in. I am so glad that God's not done building his church. That means we get to be a part of it. Now, we might be one of those living stones, but there are other people that God desires to add to this kingdom, this church, this building, this priesthood. And if he hasn't come back yet, which he hasn't, then he's not done yet. When the rapture happens, he's done building the church. We move into a next phase within eschatology or end times. But right now, we are what? We are in what is called the age of grace, where God says, come, all who want to come, come. And you and I, our job is to simply show the way. We simply show the way out of experience. We say, come this way. I, will, I want to introduce you to Jesus. And so what should be our response to this status? Look at verse 9 that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, that we would proclaim the praises of God, that we would not be quiet about it. Whether it's in worship, we would sing. Whether it's out in public, we would tell. Because if God really did call us out of darkness into his light, there should be no greater excitement than to tell people about what Jesus did. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In Genesis 1, God said, Let there be. And what was there? Light. Paul uses that same understanding and said, That's what God did in your life. And you might say, I didn't ever realize I was in darkness. Well, praise God that he has been so faithful that even at your birth, you had a mom and dad that was telling you about Jesus. Or the fact that you're here now and you've had people telling you about the word of God. That's his grace in your life. But don't get this wrong. If you reject him, you will live in darkness. And his grace that you have experienced thus far in your life, you will no longer experience. His grace has been that maybe mom and dad are believers, or you've had a grandma or uncle or someone who's told you about the word of God that's changed your life. But you now have to walk in it. You now have to say, I want to walk in that light. And Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me, does not walk in darkness, but has the light of 
life. And this is the reality. We were once not a people of God, but now are the people of God. And the only proper response is to proclaim his praise. And so all because of the word and because of the rock, we should live a life of praise, not just Sunday mornings when we sing, but what should radiate out of our lives. We should take advantage of what God's called us to do. Believe it or not, you are part of a royal priesthood. And the only reason that if you are born again believer, the only reason you have breath in your lungs is to be able to use that very breath to tell others about the way, to tell others about the word, to tell others about the rock that he might use you for his glory. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we just want to take this moment to respond to your word. Lord, we don't want it to go in one ear and out the other. We want to have that desire for the pure milk of the word. And God, for those in, the, in this room that, who are unconverted, they've never experienced the new life. They've heard about it but they've never received you. They've believed in you even, but they've never come to the point when they got out of the darkness. They've seen the light, but they've never tasted it. God, I pray today that you would speak to those who are in this room. And today, if that's you, simply call on Jesus. The Bible says that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And he who believes in him will never be put to shame. And so put your trust and faith in Jesus today. Maybe there's been times in the past that you've rose, risen your hand, or you've come up to the front, or you, maybe you've even been baptized, but you look at your life and there's no love. There's no desire for the word. Then you give your life to Jesus for real right now. Regardless of if you were saved or not in the past, you get right with him. You give yourself to him. That you might be part of the people of God, the chosen generation, a holy nation, his own special people. And God, for us today who follow you and want to please you, God, we pray that in our life, that you would help us to walk in that calling, that we truly would be those priests, the ones who would simply bring people to Jesus. We would be those fishers of men, those ambassadors, those representatives. And God, we know that the only way that this is going to happen is through the word of God, by the spirit of God. And so we welcome you into our hearts. We confess you as Lord, who is the word of God, the rock of our salvation, we thank you that you're the cornerstone, that our salvation doesn't depend on us. It's fully dependent upon what you have done and what you continue to do. So we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.